0: Outside. Why do people camp? Okay? It's sad. But the reason why I'm kind of disappointed in myself, okay, you're disappointed with me. I'm disappointed in myself, is because I never get to do anything cool like climb Mount Everest. I think that would be awesome to do, right? To say that you've climbed Mount Everest would be awesome, but I would just never attempt it. So I have to read books about it. And I'm reading a book called Into the Air, I think it's called. In thin air. Wow, you said that with such anger. Did you write the book? Are you the author? Okay, Into Thin Air. Is that okay with you? Very good. Okay, great. Uh, Into Thin Air, which is aptly titled because at the top of the mountain, uh, oxygen is like a third less in the air than it is down here. That's in the death zone up there. But what I found so interesting and so striking about that, as they're writing this book Into Thin Air, uh, they started talking about this idea that climbing Mount Everest is now... For the regular guy, I mean, it used to be back in the day you had to be an expert, you had to be a climber to be able to make it yourself. Uh, as a matter of fact, even before they started using uh, the, uh, the air receptacles that they would take up there with them to have supplemental oxygen, like you had to be really fit, really extreme, know everything about it to be able to do it. Now, all you basically need is a ton of money and a ton of time off of work, and they have guides and supplemental tags that can take you up Mount Everest think about that just a regular person off the street can say i want to go to the top and because they have a great leader and because they have help with that oxygen it is possible to make it to the top of Everest something that would seem so impossible now becomes extremely possible well as you read the text this week and you did the homework i hope in you there was a sense when you read ephesians 5:1 a sense of like what it would look like to look at the top of Everest from down at the bottom and think it is impossible to get up there. Ephesians 5.1 says this, Therefore be imitators of God. That should strike you. Take your breath away. And that's commanded to everybody. That's not just the Apostle Paul, right? The, the stud, the guy who can do everything, who knows how to get up there. That's not just for him. That's for the regular guy. That's for you and I. we got to get to the top of Everest imitating God How do we do it? Well, the great thing is the text is going to tell us and the book of Ephesians is going to tell us that not only is it possible, but it is definitely going to happen if we apply what the text tells us tonight. Let's go to Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 through 6 to find this out. Ephesians 5, 1 to 6. Paul says this, Therefore be imitators of God... As beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. Let there be no filthiness, no foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving, for you may be sure of this. That everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who, is, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience." This is a task the size of Mount Everest, to ask human beings to adopt the, the traits of God and imitate him in that sense. But it is not something out of the realm of our possibility. In fact, it will happen when we do what the text tells us. So let's get it down number one on our outlines this way. Let's aim for godly living. We want to aim for godly living. If you were here tonight and you were going to confess Christ, Your aim, your goal, 2 Corinthians 5, 9, must be to be pleasing to God. And we want to aim for godly living, and that's what imitating God will do. You will be God-like as much as you can be, the text will tell us, when you begin to imitate him. And to do that, we need to get some things very, very clear. Because what we need to make sure is that the requirement, this is a requirement, it is an imperative, this is something we must do, that the requirement is never the foundation of your relationship with God, but is the function of your relationship with God. And those are key things that we want to keep in mind. See, because people, everybody who's ever been born, is created in the image of God and has some sort of likeness. Now, sin has marred that and damaged that, but I do know why unbelievers who don't know Jesus Christ can be extremely kind. Because they have the likeness of their creator still In them, there's semblances of it. It's not fully there because of the fall, but it's still there. I know why they can do great, extraordinary things that are really not explained by anything other than the fact that God created them. But I don't want you to think that there is enough righteous actions that I can adopt like God or enough loving actions that I can adopt to make my relationship with God be okay. You see, the imitation talked about here, again, is not the foundation of the relationship but is the result of the relationship. The relationship, the requirements stem from the relationship. They don't establish the relationship. Let me see if I can help you with this. Because he says, therefore, imitate God, how? As a beloved child. Now, in the book of Hebrews, we know you didn't become God's child because you did anything. God, chapter 1, what did he do? He adopted you. Chapter 2, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. You were like the sons of disobedience, but God, verse 4, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, by grace you have been saved saved through grace, have been raised up with him and seated with him in the heavenly places. God did all of that, not because of you, but really in spite of you and what you were doing. So the relationship is established because God has been gracious. The relationship is established because God has chosen to love, not because you earned it through imitation. We've got to make sure that that is clear in our mind. If not, we are going to get things very, very mixed up. But here's where things begin to go sour in the church in America today. Because they will hear that and they will understand that that your relationship to God is not based on you following the requirement to imitate him, but that, uh, that imitation should follow, they understand that first part and they say, okay, it's got nothing to do with me. So they say, grace has eliminated our need to follow the requirements because it's got nothing to do with me at all. And that's the wrong way to look at it. See, imitation, it is not the foundation of your relationship, but the function from it. And if God has adopted you and saved you, you are now his child. The requirements are there. Uh, go with me to Titus chapter 2. Just remember, when we talk about grace like that, we always need to understand what the scriptures are saying. And the grace given does not eliminate the requirements placed upon us. In fact, my argument would be they heighten them because of the relationship that we now have with God. Titus 2 11. For the grace of God has appeared. And it brings salvation for all people. That's amazing. But what else does this grace do? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what we're talking about, aiming for godly living. And those people who have been recipients of God's grace, who did nothing to earn it, have the relationship founded on grace, that doesn't eliminate the requirements that follow when you are saved because now God is your father and there are requirements in that relationship. We who are parents should understand this more than anybody, okay? There's three awesome boys, okay? Three boys, I know I have three boys. Last time I was accused of not knowing I had a third child. Listen to the sermon and you'll understand what I was talking about. Three great boys. My prayer for them has always been, God, please give them my height. And give them my wife's looks. That has been my prayer ever since we had them. Because if they have my height and her looks, unstoppable force. We could could do anything, basically. Unfortunately, I'm looking at my son, Miles. He's going to have my height, but he looks a lot like me. So he's shorthanded. I already know that. Trenton, second kid, looks just like Andrea. but So far, he's a shorty. So he's going to be disadvantaged with the height part but he's got the cuteness. So right now, he and I, we're working on following the requirements of dad. And let me show you what I'm working with. This is the personality of my son, Trenton. Let's see it right here. That's what I'm working with with Trenton, okay? We're at Disneyland there, we're enjoying a good day, and we're trying to take a nice family picture. We always take a family picture or a picture with my wife and the boys while we're there, and he just has to have his finger in his nose, okay? That's Trenton. Or this one. I was watching TV one night with Miles, I think Andrea had Wesley, and it got very quiet. I didn't hear Trenton anymore. This is in the closet of our bedroom. I open the door, and the great parent that I am, I can't tell you how much of that cookie dough he's eaten, okay? But obviously, it's enough to put him in a sugar coma right there, okay? That is my son, Trenton. He's... He is so cute, okay? If you come over to our house, he will come over and ask you to watch a movie and he'll say this Do you wanna watch a DVDV? And that's what he calls DVDs, DVDVs. It's the cutest thing that you've ever heard, okay? But all that cuteness aside, because he is my son, when I have requirements of him or ask him to do certain things, he must follow those. We had an episode this morning, okay? We're trying to teach. I don't know what it is with boys. Maybe girls don't do this, but boys definitely do this. For some reason, they have one toy like Legos, and they're playing, and they're all over the place, and then they think it's okay to leave those and then go get more toys and bring them out and just create a huge, giant mess. I don't know if girls deal with that, but that's what we do with boys. So we're working on something. When you're finished with the toy, we're going to pick it up, put it away before we go get the next one, okay? So we had that issue this morning. He had the Legos out was done with them, and then moved to the trains, dumps them out, has the, the little uh, tracks, Tom's Tank tracks there, and I say, Trenton, remember, you've got to put away these toys first before you come to the next one, so he starts doing it, he's obeying me, I've made a requirement, he's doing it, and then, like all kids, he gets distracted, okay, starts playing with the toys that he was putting away originally, and begins to do that, so I understand, you know, he's two and a half, he's not going to get it perfect every time, so I say, Trenton. I need you to listen to daddy. Look at daddy right here. You have to put these away now. I don't want to have to tell you again. Don't play with the toys. I need you to put these away. Begins doing it again. I leave the room and I come back and he's playing again. You see, what he has done is he's disobeyed a requirement that his father has given him. So I come and as much as it hurts, it does hurt to spank your kid. I do it because I I love him. And I spank him for disobeying me because the requirement was clearly laid out and he has the ability and desire to do it. What it was, like we talked about last week, was the want. Did he want to do what daddy wanted him to do or did he want to do what he wanted to do? And I've got to train him. That is our job as parents to train the want to be what the authority is asking you to do rather than your own desire. Now, some people, they get upset, that, you know, don't spank a two-year-old for doing that and things like that. I can't tell you the the joy that I get in the relationship. Not not from spanking my kids. Don't misunderstand me over there. (laughs) I don't like that part, okay? But this is what happened. So I spank him and then I hug him and I tell him, daddy loves you, okay? My love is not conditioned upon your obedience or disobedience. I love you and that's why I'm doing this for you. So I spank him, we hug, I explain to him what I want him to do and I walk out of the room. As I'm getting ready who scurries into the room with his chubby little legs, but Trenton, okay, grabs my hand, takes me to the living room, and shows me the job that I just asked him to do, all picked up. And I look at him, and I pick him up, and I hug him, and I tell him I love him again. Because again, my love is not conditioned upon his obedience or disobedience, that's always there. What, the only thing that was missing was my pleasure in his actions, You see, in the New Testament, it talks over and over again about Christians desiring to please God. And I think that's something we miss as a church, as abroad in America, that we think that the love of God means God cannot be displeased with us. He can be very displeased with our actions. So he tells the Thessalonian church, uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.1, Just as you learn to walk and please God, I need you to do that more and more because the pleasure of God is our constant aim. His love for us will never waver. We are his beloved children, but understanding that heightens the requirement because of the relationship. Trenton should obey me. He depends completely on me, and if he does not do that, he is displeasing the one who ultimately loves him the most. Guys, we have a command before us to imitate God. And it is the function of the relationship of love and grace that has been given to us. But because of that, that requirement is huge. So you and I better get really serious about finding out what it means to imitate God because as a father, we depend solely and completely on him. Have you ever been in the NICU? You ever been in there? Wesley, the third one, was born in... Because he was face presenting, his nose was shoved, and uh, they had to do a C section, and they ended up having to take him because they wanted to make sure he could breathe on his own. So he's in there in the NICU, but I'm in there and, you know, obviously concerned, but I see other babies like they are, they're on, you know, life support. And for us, we need to kind of see ourselves in that relationship to God. We are on such dependency. That if we wander anywhere from him, it could be perilous for us. God is so kind, so gracious. How dare we run from that? We should be imitators longing to learn from him. In fact, turn with me to 1 Peter. Notice this language. Just catch this. 1 Peter 1, 13 13 to 21. 1 Peter 1, 13 to 21. Listen to this language. Incredible. Therefore, verse 13 preparing your mind for action, and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We have the idea of grace brought in here again, okay? So grace doesn't mean we relax on the requirements of God. Grace should mean we take them all the more seriously. How do I know that? Look at verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, But as those, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct, since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. That is God your Father, one of his characteristics, looking at you and saying, I am holy, set apart, sanctified, and if you are my child, you you will imitate me in that. You have no choice. You cannot do what we talked about in Ephesians 4.17. You can't think the way that you used to when you were a slave of your passions. That was ignorance and that's the way you used to live. You are my child now. I need you to think a new way. Isn't that the way you talk to your kids? You, You tell them, you are rationalizing. You are thinking about this selfishly. You need to adopt my way of thinking as the parent. And that's the same thing God is saying to us. I am your father, I am holy, you must be holy as well. This is what it requires. The relationship is founded on grace and love, but the requirements are the function of that as well. We would do well here in a marriage group just to take. I, I, I think he's trademarked sidebar. I can't, I can't do that. What? Side, sidecar. That's a donut shop, right? Let's have a sidecar. Sidecar donut, okay? Talk about something related to this but it's going to help our marriages. Listen to our relationship with God. It is founded on grace and love, and the requirements are the function of the relationship. It is the same thing when you think about your marriage. Okay, Your marriage is founded on love. It's what it's founded on. The requirements that are in marriage, and there are those requirements. you were required to love your spouse and nobody else. You're required to care for them. All those requirements are the function of the relationship that is established in love. When you get angry and start treating people with conditional love, you've now reversed that. Like the person who tries to earn their relationship to God by following requirements, which will never happen, the same way in your marriage, if you only treat your spouse good, kind, loving, when they do that for you, you've reversed what clearly can never be reversed in the Bible context. If the relationship is founded on unconditional, sacrificial love, the function must be love and care for the other person no matter what. When I flip that and say, my function, caring for you, depends on you caring for me, and that's the foundation, that's why we have divorces in America, because nobody can live up to those demands. We need to realize that when relationships are established on love, the functions, the requirements that come are heightened, But they are not the establishment of the relationship. Back to Ephesians chapter 5. Okay, well now we understand. We've got to be imitators of God. It is the function of our relationship if we say we are his child. (laughs) Two incredible verses in Matthew. Matthew 5, 9, and I believe 46. Matthew 5, 9. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. So take a look at your marriage And find out if you are the one striving to make peace, because you will find out if you are a child of God or not that way. Is your desire peace, or is it always consternation? Are you always trying to get something, or are you trying to give something? The peacemaker is the one who can say, God is my father. And then at the end of that, right, you therefore are to be perfect, teleos, complete, as your father is perfect. Perfect. We better start to have some resemblance to our, our Father. And that's what our text says. But now if you needed some help grasping what that looks like, you know it might be a little bit ethereal for just thinking about God. Let's go to Ephesians 1 and think about all the ways that he has been gracious to us. Ephesians 1, we learned about this grace that he gave to us. Paul told us we should be gracious to one another as God and Christ has been gracious to us. Take a look at Ephesians 1. Find out what that means. Even as he chose us, verse 4, in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him, in love he predestined us for adoptions as son through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. So being gracious is giving unconditional love. V- verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace which he blessed us in the beloved. Verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses. So being gracious is forgiving trespasses against yourself which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. Verse nine, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ. We've been uh, made known the, the mystery of his will. And verse 11, we've obtained an inheritance. God's graciousness, which we should be imitating as his beloved children, should be so magnanimous, just like it is in our text here in Ephesians 1. It says he's lavished that on us. We better be lavishing grace on our spouse, that exact same way. And to help you understand that concept even more, he says this in verse 2 and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. I was telling you about that book, Into Thin Air. Okay, just making sure that thin air. Uh, we was re- I was reading about the part about the, the person leading it. His name is Robert Hall. Uh, just a, a great, great guy by all accounts, very successful at leading people to the top of Everest. The reason he was able to do that is because he himself had ascended up there first and knew the way to do it. Now he can take people with no climbing experience and be able to get them up there in that sense. You can think about that relationship to Robert Hall and his desire to take people up the mountain much in the same way that we look to Christ now after our substitute. As our example, Christ has ascended to the top, what it means to please the Father, what it means to imitate the Father perfectly, completely, in every single step, he knows where to go and what to do, and did it perfectly, and then he died for you. And then he comes back down the mountain to get you, in order during your Christian journey, to take you to the top of the mountain. See, this text tells us in 5.2 that we are to walk in love the same way as Christ loved us. So we look to him as our example in how to love, not expecting anything, but giving completely for the good of another person. It is totally possible to fulfill the, the command to be an imitator of God if you have Christ as your substitute first and then your example. And then what we're going to learn in a few weeks, Ephesians 5, when you're filled with the Spirit, it will be completely possible to do this because you now have the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at work in your salvation. You see, what they say about climbing to Everest is that when you get to that death zone, about 25,000, everything above 25,000 feet is the death zone because it's very hard to breathe. They say that people have ascended by themselves without an external breathing apparatus, but it's very foolish and you will probably die if you don't do that. So to have that extra supply of oxygen becomes the thing that sustains you up there. So if Christ is our example, we have the Spirit now breathing into us through the Word, the oxygen we need in order to move forward over and over again. Without that, they have a disease and it's called this. It's called uh, HAPE, high altitude pulmonary edema. And what that is, is when you begin to lose oxygen, it begins to affect your, your, your body Affects your breathing. I think stuff gets in your lungs. There's diseases that it affects your brain because you lose oxygen. Your motor skills become very hindered. And you know what? Sometimes you don't even perceive it happening. Only other people can see it and, 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 and notice it in you. If you try to ascend this, this Mount Everest of commands, imitating God without Christ as your substitute first, then your example, and without the Holy Spirit, you are going to start to experience this. And that's where I think verses three through six come in. These will be the hindrances, the things that come in and begin to to suck your oxygen so that you begin to lose all semblance of where you are and really have no hope in carrying these things out. Watch this stark contrast. Verse two, walk in love as Christ loved you, gave himself up for you. But verse three, but sexual immorality, all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among the saints. We go from the height of sacrificial love to the depths of selfless love in sexual immorality. I mean, those two things are right there. I mean, we need to talk about this in a marriage group. Just how dangerous sexual sin, sexual temptation is on a marriage. Nothing will hinder your ability more to get to the top, if you refuse to follow Christ's example of sacrificial love, depending on the spirit to do that, then when you ingest selfishness, it's going to begin to sap your energy, the oxygen you need in order to get to the top. I mean, this is what it says all throughout the Bible. Really, you know, you you look at the culture of Ephesus, it's probably not much different than where we were today. Were they, you know, prostitutes in a temple to have a you know, experience with their gods. It was out on the streets. It was everywhere. We can see that in certain aspects here in our country and even around the world. Sexual temptation is there. And if you want to do the greatest damage to your marriage, you will depend on yourself, refuse to follow sacrificial love being led in front of you, refuse to depend on the spirit through the word and prayer and fellowship with one another, and you're going to begin to ingest what is ultimately going to kill you. You see, that disease that I told you about earlier, it can kill you really without warning. And that's what the Bible says sexual sin will do. Like an ox led to the slaughter, Proverbs 7, is the fool who goes with the prostitute to the prostitute's house. And you don't have to physically do that. You can just look on a computer screen and do that. This is what is going to sap our energy. So number two on your outline, let's get down this way. If we're aiming for godliness, we have to avoid idolatrous worship. That's ultimately what's going on when we are chasing after these things, sexual immorality, impurity, or covetousness, because in verse five it says, for you may be sure that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Guys, this is what we need to avoid. I hope this is spurring you on to join accountability because this is what I really hope accountability would be for you. I hope accountability would be one of those things that you realize that if I'm not depending on the spirit of God through going to fellowship and accountability this way, I'm basically throwing the extra oxygen that I have and I'm letting it go and I'm going to try to face this Everest command on my own and you will never be able to do it. I was reading the account of that author who wrote that book and he was at a point where he was near the top and he had his oxygen tank going, and a guy was going right by him. And he wanted to conserve his oxygen at that point in time. Um, so he asked the guy to shut the valve off so that he would conserve the oxygen. Well, the other guy was kind of hazy in what he was doing, turned it the wrong way, and full blasted his oxygen. So at that point in time, he started to feel real good for about five minutes. Like, he was like, wow, I've got so much strength. I've, I can't believe this, this feels great. And then in a moment, he said he felt like he was suffocating Just imagine that, to be from like the height of joy and strength at the top of a mountain, almost there, and then to feel like you're suffocating. Because that's what sin does. Sin is a passing pleasure. That's what Hebrews calls it. And if you choose to go down the route of this, of greed and selfishness, you will feel good for those few moments, and you will feel like you are going to accomplish what you want to accomplish, but in a moment without you even knowing it, you will feel like you are suffocating. You cannot do that. I'm begging you, don't play those games because, I mean, marriages are at stake. Children are at stake. But ultimately, God's glory is at stake because we have to watch this. What is is the antidote to this? Let there be thanksgiving, Paul says in verse four. See, thanksgiving lets you know that what you receive is a gift from God and you are a very grateful person to him. And when you begin to offer gratefulness to God, that strips you of the greed and selfishness that you think you deserve things, and you're really acknowledging that God is, every good and perfect gift comes from him, right? That begins what we need to be doing. And we need to watch for one another. It is the person who thinks he can go out on his own and do that. In that book again, I'm just getting a lot of analogies from it, there's there's the Sherpas. And there's one sad account of a Sherpa who, because he didn't want to look bad, Uh, Refused to take the help when he got the symptoms of this disease. He didn't want to admit he had it. And he refused to do it because he was afraid that other people might hear and not hire him for future jobs. And because he was born there, people think you should just be acclimated and be able to do this. Because of his pride, ultimately, he said, I don't want it. I don't need your help. And his disease got worse and worse and worse until he's suffocating from his own vomit and dying. Don't think you can do this alone. You need the body of Christ to do this. You need help to be able to accomplish this command. It'll start in your marriage. It'll branch out into your small group, ultimately to your church, because we're depending on one another. We are part, Paul said, of one body. That's why we gotta depend on one another. Proverbs 28, one. He who separates himself seeks his own desire, wars out against all sound counsel. That's a recipe for disaster right there. We cannot have that. We need to be depending upon God. Does this mean that God's children will never, ever sin? No, that's not what we're saying. Turn with me to uh, Hebrews chapter 12. Notice this, just some beautiful verses. Hebrews 12. Hebrews 12, 5 through 11, famous passages. Well, let's look at verse 3. It'll show us, again, Christ... First be in our substitute, then be in our example. Hebrews 12, verses 3, we're going to go to verse 11. Notice this. This is what the author of Hebrews wants you to do as you're enduring. Okay? He says he wants you to consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or fainthearted. When you think about people speaking evil against you, just think about Jesus. He endured it. He was able to do it. Don't grow weary and fainthearted. He was able to get through it. In your struggle against sin, notice, you're going to be struggling against it. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Verse 5, And have you forgotten the exhortation addressed to you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons, for what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So what you need to ask yourself now is if you have you've fallen, you've sinned. Is God disciplining you right now? I, I try to discipline my kids as best as I can, but I know ultimately God is a much better father than I am, and he will perfectly discipline me every single time. If you're sinning right now and there is no disciplined hand of God on you, Well, what does the text say? That's what would worry me. But if I don't regard it lightly and I look at the discipline and say, well, God is protecting me, then I respond to that. What happens when I respond? Verse 9, besides this, we had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us, notice this, for our good that we might share in his holiness. That's what the discipline of God is. He's your father and he loves you so much that if you were sinning against him, he would discipline you so you could share in his holiness. That's a loving father right there. Verse 11, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. If you remember back to Ephesians 4, remember we were to renew our minds And put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. The same two attributes we have here that are going to come if we're God's children, we're sinning, and he disciplines us. Guys, the the child of God is not going to be sinless, but he will sin less, and he will increase in holiness and righteousness. 1 John 3, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous as he is righteous. It's what we need to consider. We should be imitating God in this. If we depend on Christ as our substitute and then our example, depend on the Spirit of God, we will accomplish this Mount Everest of task, which is imitating God in this life. Will you do that? That is the question set before us. That's what we're going to talk about in small groups. But let's be open to help one another as God has designed it for that purpose here At Compass Bible Church, let's pray. God, thank you so much for a great look at your scriptures. Just a challenge, God, but what an honor it is as your children to be able to imitate you. God, I beg that you'd help us to do that. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen. All right, guys. Thank you so much for that. And just please, um, nobody invite me camping because you're gonna do that now and I'm gonna have to come up with some lie to get out of it. Then I'll get disciplined by God. It'll just be bad. I don't want that. Chris, don't invite me camping. Okay, thank you.